Holy Roman Empire. Neither holy nor Roman. Nor Roman. Nor an empire. Nor an empire. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't you laughing? I was laughing on the inside. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. If you're just joining us, this is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 2nd, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. <laughs> I always try to bring energy to the tops of these I, shows. I appreciate know? that. Really, excitement, <laughs> energy. <laughs> I'm sure everyone appreciates that. Oh, I, I'm sure they do. <laughs> and on the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. What's up? Hey, Sarah. Hey, Neil. Hey, How Jeff. are you guys? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you know, we're rebuilding our, our rapport from, from across the country. It was a little ugly the last couple times. You know, we're starting on a very friendly note. Oh, yeah, that's it's good. nice. Okay, well, we can... We're in a good place. <laughs> we can argue later, I guess. We'll save that for later in the show. Uh, lots to talk about today. Uh, Wimbledon has started. It's only the second day, and there have already been a couple of huge upsets. Dominique Team was just upset this morning by American Sam Query. On the women's side, number two seed Naomi Osaka was ousted in the first round by unranked Yulia Putinseva from Kazakhstan. But the big upset, from our perspective anyway, from my perspective, was 15-year-old American Corey Goff, who beat five-time champ Venus Williams, who she called her personal hero, which is great. Isn't it nice when you can beat your heroes? Yeah. They they always say never meet your heroes, but (laughs) maybe you should just beat them. I I think that's the way to go, right? Goff is the youngest player to make it to the main draw at Wimbledon via qualifying and the 12th youngest overall to compete at the All England Club. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I mean, I know she's like actually a big deal in terms of like she's hitting all of these like youngest to to win, you know, like an amateur title, youngest to, to qualify for Wimbledon, like all of these things. Back up to that Sam Query result. Why are they playing in the first round? Uh, this is, again, my grand conspiracy theory that all tennis draws at the slams are fixed. I mean, like I was in the semifinals two years ago. It's random. Just fishy that it's a random draw and we have a great match in the first. We always have these amazing matches in the first round. I don't think that's what they want, though. They would much rather have the better matches later. No one's paying attention in the first round. I don't know about that. Think about it. Well, look, I'm speaking more towards the U.S. Open that... They need to have, like, quality matches at the night events. There is some incentive to have some good matches in the first round. Just saying. A little conspiracy. You'll see them every year. It'll be like, oh, Donald Young's playing Roger Federer. Isn't that amazing? Again. I mean, I think- and to be fair, I mean, Dominic Team is fourth in uh, Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings, and Sam Query is only 31st so it's not like it was like number four versus number five or something meeting this early in the tournament yeah he wasn't seated if someone is unseated then i think they could potentially really play anyone and that's where it's supposed to be random but yet there's always interesting matches by coincidence hmm. Hmm. well do you guys right. like this if you like like conspiracy theories for tennis I do. Draws? I no mean, i definitely do all stuff. sports think- conspiracy theories <laughs> we can get into the best of uh during a, a slow summer episode of hot take <laughs> that's a good the idea frozen we envelope be, we the should secret be keeping suspension track of, yeah, we should be keeping track all of all NBA, these good ideas actually. yeah absolutely um the other big thing today of course that we're really excited about is the women's world cup semifinal between the u.s and england which will be over by the time people listen to this. But at the moment, we're very excited. Um, If 
uh, listeners, if you are listening to this podcast and do not yet know the outcome of the U.S.-England match, go to 538.com and reverse read our live blog and you can you can follow along. And It's almost like you were there. Spoiler free. <laughs> so yeah, we'll, <laughs> we're very excited about that. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the World Cup later on in today's show. It was a great match, though, today. It was. It was super. I was I mean, on the edge of I don't want to talk about the result because someone might not have seen it, but it was really, <laughs> really entertaining. That's, that's good of you, Jeff. On today's show, uh, the first 24 hours of NBA free agency were pandemonium. We'll recap what happened, what our model has to say about some of the more high-profile moves. We'll argue about whether competitive eating is actually a sport, and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. NBA free agency kicked off Sunday at 6 p.m. with huge announcements. Perhaps the most anticipated news of the evening came from Kevin Durant, who formally announced that he would sign a four-year, $164 million contract with the Brooklyn Nets. Kyrie Irving, another highly watched free agent, is also on his way to Brooklyn on a four-year, $141 million contract. This, of course, comes as a particularly heavy blow to the perpetually tragic New York Knicks. The Knicks' lack of moves, coupled with the splash made across the East River, led to many an angsty think piece on the demise of the franchise. Here's Richard Jefferson on Get Up discussing the news. This might be the best thing that has happened to them, because I think the Knicks, as a franchise, they need to grow up, right? They need to grow up, and they need to figure out the new NBA. Neil, what do you think Richard Jefferson means here by the new NBA? Well, I guess it's sort of a code word for this era of player empowerment and sort of players teaming up, playing with their friends, making these decisions on the basis of things that players didn't used to make decisions off of. Uh, and so, you know, you you and I were talking about this one time, this idea of like what makes sports different, how to how to build a, a winning team in different sports. And, and I had posited this idea that in baseball, it's what you know that makes you, oh, yeah. you know, a great team. But in basketball, it's who you know. <laughs> right. It's all about uh, networking. And it's all about networking yeah. and making these connections and, and these things that are sort of hatched over the course of years and sort of the teams being taken out of the loop on that. And so, you know, the Knicks... There's other things at play here, obviously. I mean, the Knicks are sort of owned by one of, if not the worst owner in sports. They're <laughs> perpetually a disaster. It's a pretty hot take there. I mean, is it, though? <laughs> like, I don't think that that is necessarily going out on a limb to say Jim Dolan is a bad owner. Um, and And also the Knicks, we keep coming back to this, like, the garden, the allure of the Knicks, the, the tradition of the Knicks. What tradition? I mean, this team... Walt Clyde Frazier and Earl Monroe and Willis Reed mean nothing to any player in the NBA right now. Uh, we, we were thinking about this uh, yesterday when we were talking about the Knicks uh, in the in the newsroom. Zion Williamson, in his whole lifetime, just to pick a random young player. Uh, <laughs> random young player. <laughs> but just like we talked about him being, uh, you know, relatively young, uh, but he is sort of uh, typical of these players in terms of when they were born. In his lifetime, the Knicks have never gone past the second round of the playoffs. Uh, and, and even if you're uh, Kevin Durant, roughly my age, uh, he 
my, you know, he probably has memories of the Knicks going to the finals and getting swept there in 1999. Uh, probably hazy memories at best of the Knicks going to game seven of the finals in 1994. But first of all, they lost both of those. They've only won two championships in their history. They weren't good in the early stages of the NBA history. They aren't, they haven't won championships in the modern stage of NBA history. Uh, MSG is, you know, for all the, the, the saying that it's the world's most famous arena it's on top of the worst train station in america in penn station (laughs) uh there's there's literally nothing like why would you sign with the knicks the knicks have spent so much time with this pr machine of all these journalists that live in new york and secretly root for the knicks uh and uh you know tell us that they're a prestige franchise the true prestige franchises of the nba are the lakers and the celtics they're the yankees of the nba Uh, but the knicks sort of act like they're the the, because they're in new york uh, the because of proximity, they're the Yankees of basketball, uh, and, and it's really just a, a franchise that why would you, why would it hold any appeal for someone like Kevin Durant to sign there? That's my rant about wow. the Knicks. Wow, wow, <laughs> Jeff, aren't you a Knicks fan? <laughs> As a New Yorker, I feel like I have to defend the Knicks here, which yeah, I got, really don't want to do. That. <laughs> That's because it's indefensible. <laughs> I generally agree with everything you just said, though. <laughs> I will say, I do think it is a little bit of a sleeping giant. As someone who like attended the John Starks era Knicks in the playoffs, I went to one playoff game against the Jordan Bulls. I mean, the place was like... it. it I've never seen it like that since. I mean, it is... There is like a huge, powerful fan base in that. City, it is a big in, fan in base arena. for sure, and it does have amazing potential. But I think it's just been so soured. And also, I'm older than all these guys, and they don't remember that and weren't there for that. So I think you're right. And especially, you know, when the Nets were in East Rutherford and playing in Brendan Burn Arena, they weren't really, you know that appealing of a landing spot but playing in the cooler part of town across the river that's right the cooler part of town i mean they 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 just have to come to terms with like a a player deciding to come to new york is now you know an option between two teams and they're the less desirable option um and i think you know for the nets case i mean they they made the playoffs and they've actually you know, shown some life, even though they haven't really had any draft picks, they're building something, they've got some good pieces. So I think, you know, you also have factor in that it's a better place to play if you if you want to win faster. So do we think the Knicks were really never an option for KD? Was that all smokescreen? Was he always going to the Nets? I mean, I don't know. Like, the thing about these contracts is we don't know when certain, even though, like, the technical rules of the NBA offseason say (laughs) that, you know, this is when things can start and this is when you can sign. Neil, are you suggesting that all of those deals were not created and and, and implemented at 6 p.m. on Sunday? I don't understand. Well, I'm clutching my pearl necklace (laughs) right now uh, for those listening. No, I mean, it really is, though. And it goes back to that idea of network. And about who people know. And this goes between agents and players and, you know, all of that. So I think to hear the reports afterward that the Knicks, they never were really interested in offering KD the max because of concerns about his injury. I don't know how true that is because we also saw this team trade away Kristaps Porzingis and sort of clear the deck specifically for this offseason. So it strikes me a little weird that they would kind of get to the precipice of uh, this big free agent class and then like not go all in, even though they've spent years planning for it. It struck me more as like 
the Knicks after the fact trying to kind of spin things and, and and be like, well, you know, we were trying to be financially prudent and he was the one that wanted too much money. You know, all of that. Though, don't you think his injury had to have mattered, though, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, no, I, I think any team in the league would still have offered him the max regardless of the injury You don't concerns. think that changed people's calculus at all? I, I mean, you could argue that it should have. <laughs> I think that it should have. And I have questions about how good the Nets are going to be Certainly next year, but even when KD comes back, mm-hmm. uh, I think you're going to be looking at a 32-year-old KD and Kyrie Irving, who who knows what you're going to get out of that guy, plus DeAndre Jordan's kind of twilight years as a player. And you're going to need an, at least another star to really kind of be a legitimate competitor, I mean, depending on what Kawhi Leonard does in the East. But I think what the Nets did, just to kind of build on this idea of networking and making yourself a desirable target— is there's like intrinsic value to being a place where a marquee top of the summer free agent signs, even if you overpay and it doesn't actually even work out. You need to be seen as the kind of place that one of these types of free agents will sign. And until you have signed someone and someone has seen you sign one of these guys, you won't be thought of that way. Like Atlanta, for instance, is a team that really has never signed one of these top-level free agents. And people talk about them as not being a destination for it. But why? Because no one has seen it. It's almost like a chicken and egg thing where all it takes is just one Kevin Durant signing. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, yeah, the Nets, they they get good free agents. Right. And so that leads me to this idea that this is all extremely a conspiracy theory. Kevin Durant is signed with Rock Nation. The president and head of branding of Rock Nation is the twin brother of the CEO of the Brooklyn Nets. Do you think that's a conflict? I do think. So, I mean, if you're the Nets, like you just said, if you're the Nets and you want to make yourself the place for cool, whatever, you know, the best players or the best personalities to come, yeah, I guess you'd use your twin brother to help facilitate that. Well, is that any different than using the fact that I don't know, a player who you grew up playing with happens to play for a certain franchise and you guys spend the summer together and play on USA basketball together and you've played on AEU teams since you were, you know, nine years old. And, and so you guys over the years just hatched this plan that once we both hit free agency, we're going to play for the same team. It's all about these connections. But that's way more, that to me is way more defensible. I mean, you've got players who want to play together. I totally understand that. I want to, I want to work with people I like, right? I mean, isn't, I mean, you know, that'd be nice anyway, right? (laughs) What are you trying to imply, Sarah? (laughs) I think Dolan has got to begin to learn that this might have something to do with him himself and just seeing how he entreats his employees, whether those are the coaches or players or Charles Oakley or whatever. I was going to say (laughs) ex-stars. Whatever it is. I mean, there's this mindset, there's a certain arrogance that the team will sort of recruit itself. I hate to make another football comparison because I feel like I do this every week. Um, (laughs) But I'll do it. You know, there was a period in Michigan football where they just got complacent thinking that... Oh, wait, 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 wait. It's not just a football reference. It's it's a a Michigan Michigan football football reference. Okay. All right. All right. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, that is a, a little bit of a double whammy. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Do it. Do it. That you would think just the uniform, you know, the stripes on the helmet, the the stadium would just kind of recruit itself. And at a certain point, that goes away as, you know, as generations come up and never seen that team win, just as Neil was saying, 
You know, they're not as familiar with that history. They don't care about Willis Reed, just like those guys, those recruits didn't care about Bo Schembecker. You know, like there is a thing where we as older people get caught up in the past and not realize that the past is being lost on some of these guys. And I think they do need to sort of reevaluate how desirable of a target that is to go. So what did the Knicks actually do in free agency? Does what they did make sense, Jeff? No, I mean, (laughs) not really. It's like they got a bunch of decent, solid players. They just forgot to get the stars. Julius Randle, I mean, he's, he's a good scorer. Taj Gibson, Bobby Portis, who... You know, has punched a teammate in the face, so that <laughs> this is true. seems like a, a good fit. Reggie yeah, Bullock, yeah. and then Alfred Payton. I mean, it, I think what it looks like is like most of these guys are on two-year contracts. I think this is all now machinations for a Giannis play in, in 2021. Yeah, it looks really bad. I mean, it doesn't even look good offensively, as bad as it looks defensively. So we ran some highly preliminary uh, projections off of our like depth chart algorithm uh from our carmelo uh player projection system and it has the knicks as the 26th best offense the 28th best defense and a 25 win team uh basically talent wise next year and of all the guys that they added so julius randall alfred payton reggie bullock bobby porters todge gibson and wayne ellington can't forget him the only one that projects as an above average player next year is julius randall then you mix in kevin knox who was like historically bad as a rookie you mix in rj barrett who our projection systems think at least at first is going to be just a total black hole in terms of like uh, you know scoring a lot on a lot of shots and just highly inefficient one of those types of players it's just the recipe for like a total disaster that they do have Mitchell Robinson though who looks good in the in the numbers uh underrated superstar Mitchell Mitchell Robinson mm, that's um, what they say but that's not enough to necessarily build a uh a good team off of if you're signing a bunch of these guys and the prices at which they signed the guys were also like overpays. Uh, there was a good story at the Washington post by um, uh, Neil Greenberg, who uh, a friend of the show, he's been uh, on hot takedown before uh, to talk about hockey, but he looked at basically the price at which the Knicks paid per win. So the average team pays $3.3 million per win. The Knicks paid for their haul of free agents $6.3 million per win. So their <laughs> Kevin Durant money was like sitting yeah. in a bag uh, by the door. And they were just like, oh, well, we I got to spend this on somebody. And then they're like, you know, Bobby Portis is somehow coming in and projects for below replacement level of production maybe they thought they'd lose it if they weren't if they couldn't just spend it now you know you got I mean, you know. at least stuff it in a mattress yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Logic. interesting that they spent all that money with Kawhi still out there i mean they basically spent their way out of the running for Kawhi. i mean i guess he they just have, they were like oh there's no there way he's literally <laughs> no chance yeah that Kawhi would ever i mean he's a west coast guy Anyway, it seemed like the only team not based in California that had a chance at Kawhi is the Raptors just because he was there and happened to win a championship. You know, no big deal uh, with them. Uh, that gets your foot in the door. That gets you a meeting with Kawhi if, if <laughs> uh, he's been with your franchise for a year and we, you won a championship with him. Well, so speaking of Kawhi, what he's the one who's still out hopefully he'll still he won't have signed yet by the time this podcast is out but i'm waiting for those woge bombs yeah so where is he what what's going on with that what's he waiting for 
I mean, who knows what Kawhi is waiting for ever or like what, you know, nobody, nobody can really predict what he is thinking at any given time. But it does seem like the Lakers are still the favorites in the betting markets uh, to land Kawhi. Um, you know, you've also heard some Clipper things, the Raptors we just talked about. Um, but the Lakers are heavy favorites at Westgate, the um, the casino and sportsbook. But who knows? It seems like, you know, he's obviously got connections to Los Angeles and has a desire to move to Los Angeles. But it feels like it's between the Lakers and the Raptors. I, the Clippers would be surprising at this point. I mean, I know LeBron is, you know, giving the hard pitch. And I think it was reported that his pitch is, you know, in a couple of years or maybe in a year, this is your team. And I'm I'm going to obviously... I'll see that, you know, I'll believe that when I see it, but that he really will sort of make way and and let him be the, you know, primary option on that team, which is hard to believe considering what we've seen from LeBron. Also, what about Anthony? I mean, Anthony Davis has to be sitting there like, I never agreed to that. (laughs) (laughs) If Kawhi goes to the Lakers, are they the most hated team ever? I don't think so. I think if you, I, I do think though, if you're if you don't like super teams, which is a growing sentiment, I think in the, in this league, may, maybe not. I mean, maybe it's really just the people who are you know not as into this league and and sort of don't like you know how it compares to other sports. This is probably the most contrived of the super teams. I mean, like even the Warriors still had Thompson and Curry, who were homegrown. And, you know, those Heat teams had weighed, so there was still, like, a connection to their past, whereas this is just out of the blue. We're going to create something out of nothing. So I could see that sentiment turning on them. Yeah, and it's also, like, one of the reasons posited that this Laker team with this Kawhi, LeBron, AD, Big Three would be hated is just the idea that Lakers sort of didn't deserve to have these free agents, that they've basically done nothing right over the past five years, I guess, ever since Kobe uh, retired. They've sort of, you know, they drafted guys fine, I guess. You know, some players that ended up being, you know, borderline stars like D'Angelo Russell, but like traded them. uh, And they've had all this front office upheaval. You've got Rob Palenka forgetting the rules of free agency and kind of having to scramble to, to gather up cap space. And you also have this idea of Lakers exceptionalism that their fans sort of believe that they're entitled to have a great team and a championship team just because they're the Lakers. But I don't know, what does it mean for a team to do things the right way? What what does it mean for a team to earn a free agent signing with them? Like we said at the top of the show, it has nothing to do with the team. It's almost, you know, the team itself, aside from its location and its ownership to a certain extent, uh, and the relationship that ownership has with agents uh, of star players, it's like totally irrelevant what uh, what the team has done or who the team is or whether it's won recently or anything about it. Can you serve as a landing spot and platform for my personal brand as a player and allow basically do you have enough cap space to allow me to play next to superstars and vulture rings i mean we're really in this age of almost like mercenary players but it makes sense i mean you know if you're a player you know you're going to be judged on championships in the long run why not do this type of thing and i think people like lebron and kevin durant almost like, you know, made the sacrifices and suffered the slings and arrows in the public perception to allow subsequent players this freedom to do what they want for themselves rather than being beholden to, you know, the whims of teams and owners. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think we'll leave that there and move on. Let's pause for a quick word from one of this week's sponsors, ExxonMobil. Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. More and more scientists think carbon capture is key to reducing CO2 emissions globally. It's one way ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. This week's show is also brought to us by NetSuite. One problem for growing businesses is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory. It's a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. NetSuite saves time, money, and unnecessary headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com takedown. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E, dot com slash takedown to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com slash takedown. The Nathan's Famous International Hot Dog Eating Contest is back in Coney Island on Thursday, the 4th of July. Joey Chestnut is the defending champion. He's won the past three contests and 11 of the past 12. And he set new world records the past three years. Last year, he ate a ridiculous 70... Oh, God. Last year, he ate a ridiculous 74 hot dogs. 74 hot dogs. It's a lot of That's hot dogs. That's a lot of hot dogs. And like no ketchup or mustard. Right. Sorry, mustard. I don't mean to betray my ketchup <laughs> biases. <towards laughs> they do hot have dogs. buns, though. They yeah. have to eat the buns and they no, soak them and It's so in gross. Water. I just can't. I can't watch it. I know a lot of people love watching it, but it, it really grosses me out. So the question is Is this a sport? <laughs> I would argue yes. I'm going to take that position. All right. That is my okay. pre-designated position All right. that bold, I will then bold. defend okay. debate style. Let's, let's hear you. Um, so it's physical. You're testing the limits of the human body. Yeah. It's a competition. And it's a strong competition. So if you look at I would maybe argue that it wasn't always a sport. Uh, the record for most HDBs consumed uh, in, in a 12-minute at the time span, they've, they've made it 10 minutes since then. Uh, but in 12 minutes, uh, before the amazing Takeru Kobayashi came along, the record was 21, uh, 24 and a half hot dogs uh, set in 1997. <laughs> uh, and... If you look, at, you mentioned Joey Chestnut's 74 HDBs uh, wait, wait, set wait. last year. Wait, wait, wait. HDB? Yeah, what? Hot dogs plus buns? <laughs> oh, my God. Come on. <laughs> Get with the lingo. Oh so God. the real quantum leap, the breakthrough came in 2001 when Kobayashi consumed 50 hot dogs and buns in 12 minutes. And he really uh, pioneered the style of snapping the hot dog in half, feeding it into your mouth, soaking the bun, sticking it in, uh, and doing that an incredible amount of time, doubling the previous record. He was the Babe Ruth of hot dog eating. Uh, And so I think ever since then, ever since Kobayashi made hot dog eating a... uh, 
a really competitive activity and showed uh, the world the the potential for it. Joey Chestnut has kind of taken that torch and, and run with it, and now the record being up into the 70s. Uh, Major League Eating became a thing in this era. There, there wasn't a unified body, and it actually ended up costing Takeru Kobayashi his... Um, his his career in the hot dog eating contest kind of a tragic hero uh but my point is is that even if hot dog eating was sort of a weird fringe activity in the 90s which it probably was uh now it really has elevated to sports status by whatever measure that you want to look at it in terms of participation popularity television coverage competitiveness in addition to the sheer physicality of consuming that much hot dog meat uh, in, in such a short amount of time, I think it qualifies as a sport uh, more so than some of the other things that air on ESPN, like the World Series of Poker. That's my argument. All right. All right. That's a compelling argument. Okay, Jeff. It wasn't, I mean, that compelling. But it was, you make some points. I mean, I just don't think we should define sports by what's on ESPN. I mean, that's, that's a television station. And that's, like, I don't agree that the World Series of Poker is a sport either. To me, my reason it's not a sport, besides for the fact that it's just gross, it's like the it's like the inverse of sport. I mean, sports is about exerting energy, and you're consuming food. Burning calories, not consuming, consuming them. energy. <laughs> I mean, it's the opposite in some ways. And frankly, like eating is one of the few things that has like no place in sports. I mean, what's next? Could we have a sleeping contest? Competitive sleeping. I mean, that would that would that would be physical and about training your body too. So, would that be a sport? Would be my question. And also, another philosophical problem. That's not the point of food. That's not what we do with food. We we eat to satisfy, not to you know, as some sort of gimmicky event. So, uh, you know, I, that part of it appalls me. I will say that most Fourth of Julys, I try to watch the contest. You. Have you ever tried the contest? No, oh, God, no. <laughs> I did that once. Did you really? Wait, what? You tried hot dog eating? Yeah, at a 4th of July event uh, that my, in my wife's family, we tried to recreate it. I had two and a half hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> two, two I mean, I, I just got to the third hot dog and was like, I don't want this. I'm full. This is stupid. So you're only 71 <laughs> and a half behind Joey I, Chestnut. I was eating so close. You were so close. Way with <laughs> toppings. So I wasn't, maybe I wasn't, maybe my heart in wasn't water. in it. Maybe that's what we're, we're uncovering here. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And also, wait, did all those records <laughs> go up when they started doing the novelty of dipping the buns in the water? Is that when it broke through? Well, well sure. sure. So I mean, that was like really the technology. Fo- that was the Fosbury flop of hot dog eating. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're talking about these other sports that have had huge technological innovations that that allowed people to push the limits. This is one of those sports when Kobayashi figured out that you you don't eat it like normal people would eat a hot dog. You eat it like a freak. You snap it in half, stuff it in your mouth like a like a chipmunk, and then dip the the bun in water to dissolve it and make it go down easier. It's it's totally disgusting. Literally everything about it is terrible. Everything about it's it is so gross. awful. It's just... Uh, and yet, you have to admire the fact that somebody sat down and looked at this uh, contest that should have been for fun, something that should have been just a, a, a nice activity that people do at Coney Island to celebrate America's independence, and they were like, how can I metagame this? <laughs> how can I find America's the most gluttony. efficient way? Yeah. And, and it is such it a is, metaphor. It is the true American. 
American sport. Yeah. I mean, it, that does make sense. Are, do all sport, sports originate with 10-year-olds trying to one-up themselves in whatever? Like, I assume. <laughs> hey, I can eat more hot dogs than you. I can eat 74. Okay, cool. I, I don't think <laughs> anyone would have thought that a person could eat 74 hot dogs until just very recently. Like over weeks even. Like I think uh, yeah, how how long would we have plenty. to go back to find like 74 hot dogs? You know, I'll have a hot dog maybe like once a month I'll go to Grace Papaya. Sure, sure. Um but gosh, <laughs> how how many years of my life would I have to go back to just find a period of time where I consumed 74 hot dogs? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, that'll that can be our rabbit hole next week. Okay, that seems as good a place as any to leave it. I'm not sure we've uh, changed any hearts or minds, but uh, there'll be a lot of hot dogs consumed on on Thursday. And listeners, let us know. Uh, what what do you think? Is, yes, please let us know. Leave us a, a comment when you're reviewing the show in <laughs> iTunes. Do you think hot dog eating is a sport? And, and also tell us your personal experience. Uh, can you beat Jeff's record of two and a half? Good luck. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. We have a very special guest joining us this week, our 538 copy desk intern, Santul Nerker. Take it away, Santul. So the background for this is that I was editing a story by our very own Jake Lorem about the Women's World Cup. Basically, the article he wrote was about the U.S. women's national team and how they've, they had an, uh, an historic group stage. So I was noticing when I was editing, editing this that there was a discrepancy in the group stage scoring. So from 91 to 95, suddenly uh, group points went from wins, went from being two to three. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. So I did a little bit of... Uh, background research as we do here at 538 um, <laughs> and i found that fifa actually they made a change going into the 94 uh, men's world cup that they increased the number of points from two to three for a win to boost uh mainly american viewership because they're like oh americans don't want to watch these like zero zero draws or whatever correct uh, <laughs> or just draws in general i think it's just un-american um <laughs> draws are un-american that's a really good point yeah they, they are <laughs> um but so they did this and they're like okay we can get more americans to watch also the 1990 men's world cup was just like an absolute slog like there's something like 20 no there's 16 draws overall and on top of that, there were like 11 draws in like one group or something like that. So FIFA was like, okay, we need to change this. So they did. But it's at this point, it's unclear whether actually the, the changing the group, uh, the group stage points for a win from two to three has actually had an impact on A, uh, the number of decided games, which is like a game ending with a win or a loss for a team and not just a draw. Or the number of goals. I did, again, a little bit more digging as this is a rabbit hole. Uh, and I found a couple of papers actually that uh, tested this. There's one paper done in 2017 and it was basically they tested various hockey leagues in Europe where they moved to a three-point system. So it's not just in soccer. And they found that there was like really no effect on the goal scored or the relative number of ties. However, there was a paper in 2007 in the Journal of Sports Economics that found that they... Again, economists, they are very uncreative, so they tested something called excitingness, which is measured by goals per match, uh, proportion of decided matches, and like an index that combines both. And they found that excitingness did go up, actually, in the seven domestic leagues, which are Albania, Brazil, England, Poland, Scotland, Germany, and Romania. And again, what, what I've looked at, um, just through my own digging uh, in the men's and women's World Cups, 
is that you have something that like looks like a trend where it seems like the number of goals uh, per match is going up, where you know in 1990, the total number of goals per match was like 2.3, and then by 2014, it had gone up to 2.8, you know, accounting for the, uh, the inc- expanded field. The percentage of draws had gone down to 37.5, and there seems to be a trend since 2010 where 57% of group matches in the Men's World Cup in 2010 uh, were draws, and in 2018 it was just a third. And in the Women's World Cup, it was 25% in 2011, and it 16, was 16.6% this year. But it was 56% in 2015. So there doesn't seem to be like a really strong trend going one way or the other. Um, but I, I think perhaps that the domestic leagues are perhaps just like a better format for testing this because there's just so much more information you can look at. Maybe like the World Cup is just not a, a good setting for looking at uh, evaluating these changes and the domestic leagues are better. And there's usually like a bit of a lag also. Uh, so a few years after this rule change, there was no real difference in the numbers of uh, number of goals scored or the draw percentage, but it did change after a while. So there could be that still at play. It's kind of interesting because like I, I get the idea more points you want a win more but one point for a draw is still better than no points for a loss so the psychology doesn't really change that much right also like i guess the rationale was the incentive to score and get that win uh is is what will sort of make them push more on offense and try to score more right but wouldn't it also like if a team was leading by like a goal late in a match they would go into like a shell sooner or or more aggressively to try to like hang on to those desperate three points. <laughs> and it would maybe they that's the reason why there's no effect is they just offset each other. Exactly. That's that's a really good point. And that's actually what a lot of critics of this have said is that, look, if a team goes up one nil, I mean, like if you're a very dominant team, you might like keep pushing. Like if you're the, you're the women's U.S. women's national team, you know, were they going to stop after going one up on Thailand? Like, no, they didn't stop. After, <laughs> just like, park the bus. <laughs> just, just, just stop. Like, no. Um, I think like it's a sign of a good team. But at the same time, if it's a very close match, you're probably are more likely to go into a shell. You are more likely to play more defensive. Do you, do you think what they were trying to eliminate were teams incentive for teams to basically tie all three of their group matches and then advance meaning you don't even have to win a game and you can still move on i think that might have been part of it because one thing one of the reasons given was that uh teams could basically if they got two ties like they were almost guaranteed to get through mm-hmm. um but that changed when you added the extra point i've long said that the nhl should go to a three points for a regulation win system. Yeah, I was going to say this this kind of reminds me of the NHL where they uh, added a point for losing games uh, to try to sort of uh, decrease the probability. In overtime. Sure, whatever. I mean, <laughs> they're giving so you credit for losing games. It's <laughs> super weird. It's so weird. Anyway, yeah, the, the rationale was to keep teams from playing for, you know, like a shootout uh, or, or, you know, late in a game from trying trying to kind of get it into overtime or whatever. Uh, but it really just ended up having a bunch of unintended consequences, which I feel like all of these sports rule changes, <laughs> and it's difficult. I understand, you know, I'm not envious of the position that these commissioners and, and uh, leagues have to be in of figuring out, okay, we want to accomplish this one goal. And here's a change that we've thought about a lot. And on paper, it seems good. And we're just going to implement it. 
and cross our fingers and hope for the best. <laughs> because there are, you know, these teams are really smart for the most part. Maybe the Knicks aside. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> just to bring it back to the earlier segment. Um, but uh, th- these teams are really good at figuring out all of the weird ways that they can kind of circumvent the intended effect of the rule and find unintended consequences and exploit those. Uh, and so, yeah, I feel like the NHL sort of ran into that, too, when they had the loser point. So what you do in the NHL is you give three points if you win in regulation or you win in overtime. And then two points to the shootout winner and one point to the shootout loser. You're like saying it out loud does not help make it seem less <laughs> No, but think in- about it. If you're crazy. if you're chasing the playoffs and you really need three like three points is what you you have your in your crosshairs then you're going to really go for it and you're going to have those exciting results you know whether it's end of regulation or in overtime now that manipulation is nuts like encouraging overtime is a bad idea i'm just gonna say that all the time Over- no <laughs> nothing ever good ever happens in overtime it's well, not good well people have argued also that the hockey you know has been uh hesitant to change the loser point system because it artificially creates the appearance of parity because you have teams <laughs> that are losing getting points and so they sort mm-hmm. of rise up in the standings and because you only get two points for a win in hockey, uh, even the winners don't move up that much more. So when you have a lot of games that dole out three points per game instead of two, two for the winner, zero for the loser in regulation, then you're sort of artificially floating up the teams at the bottom as long as they make it into overtime or into the shootout. Uh, and it keeps more teams and fans, I guess, of those teams under the uh, perception that they're closer to being in playoff contention for longer in the season. I think that's a terrible rationale. Uh, and, and basically, you're just saying, like, yeah, it, it makes delusional fans of bad teams think that they're still in the playoff hunt. And sometimes those teams make the playoffs. They're bad teams, remember, but they make the playoffs. You know, it's a, it's a very dumb rationale, but I don't know. It's one of the rationales, I guess. So wait, are you saying that Maple Leafs fans would be even more despondent if this system didn't exist (laughs) yeah i guess so like uh any and you know anything you can do to make uh canadian teams (laughs) less likely to win the cup i guess don't make the the canadians uh, mad at us again well no i'm not saying that i I think gary bettman is saying that uh which is why he's so hated in in canada neil just going after canada again (laughs) i saved that for my andrew wiggins takes oh boy (laughs) thank you so much for joining us Sandal. That will do it for this week's show. Thank you all for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Jake Arlo is in the control room this week. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Suntool, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.